hello. Welcome to My Kind of Folks. Uh, my guest tonight is Daniel Fernandez. Daniel is a multi-instrumentalist and DJ from Austin. He is the frontman for The Halfways, who are releasing their second album soon, and he has just released some new material under his uh, Synth Mist production name. Um, thanks for joining me, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, and I'll take this this uh, moment to clarify the pronunciation of the name. It's Synthemusk. I know that it's a, <laughs> it's a hard name. Nobody, no, it, like most people never get it right the first time. So I just wanted to, to, to establish the, the correct pronunciation. Daniel's new album, which is coming out in sometime in the future, has a phenomenal psychedelic rock song that is in Spanish, which is just something I don't ever hear. It's quite beautiful. It's got epic guitar. What what is that song about? That song, uh, it's called Nada Sigue Igual, which uh, means nothing stays the same. I got the name from my great friend Caleb Fleischer. He played me one of his songs because we were chilling in my apartment and he played me one of his songs. And it was this beautiful track called Nothing Stays the Same. And, you know, I was just so impressed by Caleb from that day on. And I don't think he ever released that one, but it definitely made an impression. So years later, I wrote this song. I wrote the chorus called Nada Sigue Igual. And I asked if I could use his his, uh, his song's name. And he said, yeah, sure, go for it. And the song is about... You know, it's a breakup song. Basically, it's just about how things can change from one moment to the next. What you're talking about, borrowing ideas from other musicians, is such a key part of art. When you enter into a particular artistic tradition, I, I feel like you're putting yourself into a conversation with people that you'll never meet, or in this case, with people that you are directly collaborating with and kind of building new creations with this shared language i gather inspiration from my peers uh, on a constant basis which is why i sometimes fear that if i were not in a city like austin i might not be able to make music as readily because i wouldn't be inspired by others as much as i am inspired by the people in austin uh, daniel's got a song called standing on the shoulders of your friends but what what he just said is is thoroughly even embedded in his music for those listeners who have never been to austin it is an unbelievable artistic community almost everyone you meet that is a waiter or a cashier is going to be in like three or four bands everyone's got beautiful projects and i actually am aware of the halfways to begin with because their keyboard player I, I met her waiting for the bus and we just started talking. Literally everyone is, is involved with some kind of project. In Austin, you can throw a rock in any direction and for sure you'll hit a musician. And it all seems like you guys know each other too. Yeah, it seems that way. And also my friend once put it most succinctly and she said, Austin is like a slow moving orgy, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> Yeah, and sometimes a not-so-slow-moving orgy. <laughs> you got all these these places that are 
intentionally public places that encourage people to talk. And I, I think it's just like a very friendly and open city. Absolutely. There is no place like Austin. Austin is just kind of a one of a kind city. And and I feel that people who've lived here all their lives kind of don't understand that, that it's that it's not like that everywhere else. Because, you know, you go to different cities and people are just simply not as nice. And you can't make friends on the bus or like in line at a food stand without coming off as a total weirdo. Exactly. It's like in Miami, it was much harder to make friends. People are just not as open. It's, uh, you know, it's more difficult to, to form meaningful relationships when the when the population is more transient you know people come and go more faster it's difficult in austin i can't even keep track of all the people i meet because you know people are just so open and ready to talk to you at any given moment it's beautiful absolutely beautiful and i wish that more places had this kind of attitude i think a lot of it comes from just texans being very open and friendly a lot of people who haven't spent much time in Texas will will badmouth it because of, you know, whatever stereotypes they have. But Texans are some of the, the friendliest people I've met in my entire life. Oh, absolutely. People are nice everywhere. It's just that they are kind of conditioned by their environment to maybe not be so nice or not be so open as is the case in Miami, for example. But once those people step out of that environment and then they step into a new one, the new environment simply reinforces the behaviors in you that lead you to be a more open, tolerant person. Here in Austin, particularly, I feel that it attracts people who are already open and tolerant, but the city reinforces those kinds of behaviors because if you're nice to people, they're going to be nice to you. Don't be an asshole everywhere you go and chances are you'll, you'll get a better reaction. What you're talking about, cities reinforcing people. Since I've come to San Francisco, what I'm trying to do with my life and my goals are really being expanded by the type of people that I'm meeting and interacting with, because the people out here are extremely well-educated and working on things that I wouldn't even think about. So it makes me think in some very unusual ways. I imagine as a musician living in Austin has got to be just like unending exchange of ideas and that you, you will have your musicianship just expanded in some pretty wild directions by just people that you get to interact with. That's the beauty of, of this city. It's that if I have an idea for a saxophone part, I can hit up my saxophone player. If I have an idea for a violin part, I can hit up my violinist neighbor. It's just so so easy to, to advance your projects when, when you've got such a vast collection of people and musical resources from which you can draw inspiration. It's, it's amazing. There's also friendly competition. I love friendly competition. And so when I see my other friends playing on stage, that immediately fires me up and I want to play too, you know? The spirit of friendly competition really brings out the best in everyone. It's not about being better or beating someone. It's about like, hey, you're doing this thing and I know that I can go and kick ass at this thing too. Competitiveness in my childhood was downplayed a little bit and it's a really positive force 
for challenging yourself, for bringing the most out of yourself. You can't do that without competition. Absolutely. And and let me just ask you, because you piqued my interest. It was downplayed in the in the whole cliche, like participation trophy kind of thing where they're, they're like, they don't keep scoring that kind of stuff. I, I think that winning was not as important. And I remember I got a Defensive Rookie of the Year award when I was on my middle school football team, and I did not deserve that shit. That was <laughs> definitely some type of participation award that I, I was getting, and that I didn't have as much just, just go out and compete and win and be better hammered into me at a young age. Competitiveness is something that I am more discovering as an adult and discovering that I like. I hear you. I always stress it's friendly competition because I want to lift my friends as much as I want them to lift me, you know? So so it's it's not really about like beating anybody down or proving yourself to be better, but it's just about playing too. In that sense, I guess it is kind of like a participation trophy, but it is competition that is purely towards the goal of like creating something together and sustaining it. There's a saying, a rising tide lifts all boats. Everyone working in this kind of friendly competition will overall increase the quality of the music coming out of Austin for years to come, hopefully. Well, I would think so. Being surrounded by better musicians is the best way to become a better musician. Bright Light Social Hour is really one of the main reasons that I moved to Austin. I saw them once. And and then I was like, wow, I want to go to Austin and do what they do. And so uh, I came here and I became friends with them. So I was happy about that for sure. That's brilliant. When I, I heard that you'd made the transition into electronic music, I was a little bit surprised at first because I had spent many years going to a lot of Psytrance shows. Oh, no way. <laughs> I did enjoy that quite a bit but psychedelic rock has always been my jam since i was very young and when i discovered the halfways and some of the other bands that you were playing with i was like oh this is fantastic like this is exactly what i want to get out of out of austin so i heard that you had moved into djing and i was like huh interesting so what made you take this switch Truthfully, it's that around the summer of 2017, I broke up with my girlfriend who was also in the band. And then, you know, after that, we kept playing for like a couple of months, but it was kind of uncomfortable because we, we were broken up and then we were still in the same band. And then after she quit, we kept playing with a new bass player, but I was really unfocused, you know, because I had I was going through the breakup and consequentially kind of getting drunk and partying a bit too much. And... uh no regrets, no regrets. And uh, I woke up one day and felt real hungover, first of all. And uh, and secondly, I felt real shame that I hadn't really written a new song in a really long time. And and so I, I hooked up my microphone, I grabbed my guitar, and I started playing. And of course, my microphone didn't work. It was broken. So I was like, shit, no way. I'm going to, I'm going to make music right now at all costs. What can I make with what I have? And that's always been my attitude. I had my MIDI controller and a synth and I hooked it up and, you know, I set up a, a four on the floor beat and I was like, Ooh, <laughs> I like that already. And so then I just made my first track and I was like, wow, that's something that I've never made in my life. And it has no, no vocals 
no lyrics to remind me of my breakup, I like this, so I'm going <laughs> to stick to it. Yeah, I've made about 120 songs since then. Whoa. That was in November of 2017, that was. That's a very interesting point that you make, that you don't have to draw in lyrics about emotionally what is happening to you. You can just focus on the music. Lyricism, you're taking everything and you're making it into something beautiful that can cut you. That's a major benefit. How do you feel like the process differs between writing a song on like a traditional instrument and using software to create electronic music? Well, it's a completely different process and more importantly, a completely different mindset behind the process or carry, the carrying out of the process. So for me, live music and uh, basically playing my guitar and, and playing in a band, that's that represents love and producing electronic music represents lust. It Ooh. basically just represents two completely different facets of, of my existence, you know, neither of which is less important but they're just different. So when I write music for the band, because, you know, every time I sit down with my guitar, I think of it in terms of the band, no matter how different it is from what I may have written in the past. So when I do that, I just sit down, I start playing. And my goal is always to attempt to play in ways or to attempt to, to play in styles that I've never played in before. So that's what drives me to play chords all over the, the neck and stuff. So I, tr I just try to find different inversions of chords. And once I find something I like or a chord progression that I like, then I start uh, singing above it, kind of just gibberish at first. But once I have a melody that I like, the words start popping. And each new combination of more or less gibberish words that I try gives me an idea of where the song is headed lyrically. I just basically continue that process until I have the structure of the song mapped out. And usually I, 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 I record it as I go. So I, I record voice notes on my phone and I just keep updating it and updating it until I can play the full structure. And then I sit down and I write the lyrics now knowing the whole, I don't know, what do you call it? The stanza of a melody? The amount of syllables? I don't know. So I, now knowing the amount of syllables of the melody, I can then go and think of of the lyrics that will fit that and edit it. And then I lay it down. And when it comes time to, to record the overdubs, I kind of just follow the same process. I just start messing around until I hear something I like. People's processes might vary a whole lot, but most people probably just mess around until they hear something they like. And then they pursue that idea. I don't think that anybody sits down unless you're like Mozart or something, I don't think that you can just sit down with everything already mapped out in your head, you know? You can have like a very good idea of something, but then it kind of just develops from there organically. What you're talking about is a very normal, typical process that almost every musician is engaging in. And someone like Mozart from age four was just composition. So his entire brain was wired his entire life to just be composition. So I don't think he should be viewed as the norm. He should be viewed as a very rare outlier. One thing I've, I've wondered, do you feel kind of married to the original idea when you start working on a song? The original idea 
simply evolves over time. I mean, when I write a song and if my intention is to bring it to a band, I write it and then it simply has to go through different filters. Once it passes through the David filter, it's a different song. Once it passes through the Calvin filter, it's a different song because they all interpret it in their own ways. And then you you know, you layer on their parts and it, towards the end, it's a completely different song, even if I'm playing it the same way. So that's the beauty. And also one of the more difficult things of being in a band is that you have to compromise. For example, I'm lucky that I pl- I get to play with some of the best musicians that I've met, but ultimately they do do things differently than I would have intended. And, and it took me a while, but I finally was able to be like, okay, I have to come to terms with the fact that if you want to be in a band, you have to to make a compromise. And it's definitely been for the best because they do things that I could never do. That's pretty remarkable and seems like a massive benefit of being in an artistic community because every band is an artistic community. No man's an island. You got to figure out how to collaborate with other people because they will constantly surprise you with the quality of their work and what kind of ideas you inspire in their heads. It's beautiful to see the way that these incredible musicians can take a song and then just completely leave their mark on it and turn it into a better song. Through each step, they help me turn my songs into better songs. And they're just really so good at what they do. I mean, each one has their own like flavor. David's an, an excellent guitarist, an excellent singer. David is such a good guitarist. Yeah, he's an excellent guitarist. I love harmonizing with him. Calvin's a virtuoso in pretty much every instrument that he plays. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. Um <laughs> And uh, I call him the human arpeggiator. Ari's a classically trained pianist. She really brings the color and the flourishes to the music that I've always wanted. And I've never really had to the level that Ari brings. And then there's Trey, who's just such a versatile drummer, but also shows an incredible level of restraint. And that's, I think that one of my favorite qualities about Trey is his level of restraint. Uh, It's so easy to play a song that's nuanced with him because he's able to play quietly. When volumes can go down, that's when you get to really hear the detail. A lot of musicianship is being able to create beauty out of small sounds. And if you think about the drums, stereotypically the drums are the loudest instrument and there is a lot of drummers that are just trying to get the loudest noise out of their drum sets which totally has its own merit but what you're talking about the quiet part of percussion and having this range if you have a range between very quiet and extremely loud suddenly you have dozens of things to play with Whereas if you have a really small range where it's all as loud as possible, then you don't really have that much to play with. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. I really like music that's that's dynamic and I really like loud parts, but I really like quiet parts too. You know, that combination and, and use of dynamics is what I really enjoy in, in music, both playing it and listening to it. Yeah. And life as well. Life has loud parts and life has quiet parts. And if life was entirely one or the other, it would be unbearable. But when you have the mixture of both, it's it's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's a lot of your approach to traditionally making songs and creating songs. But how do you approach electronic production? Because you aren't approaching it with the mindset of, I'm making something that other people are going to then iterate upon. When I make electronic music... I think 
how can I make my friends dance? That's kind of what I what I'm thinking because that's one of the greatest pleasures in life. And more importantly, how can I make them dance without sacrificing my musical integrity? My electronic project is mostly centered around techno and house. Most of the time it has a four on the floor kick or or at least if it has variations it's still pretty kind of a straight kick. The kick is kind of already set and then one of the most important tools that you have as an electronic producer is the the sound selection. You can have excellently written parts, but if they have the wrong sound, then it won't be an excellent song. In order to get the the song to convey the message that you wanted to convey, you have you have to select the correct sounds. I spend my time selecting the sounds and kind of like uh, molding the vibe of the song through the sounds that I'm selecting and I don't spend too much time on it because you you can go down a rabbit hole of selecting sounds and you'll never be happy with the kick or you'll never you'll never be happy with the bass sound or you're, you'll never be happy with the hi-hat sound or whatever so I kind of try to limit myself as to how long I'll spend selecting each sound but then I kind of layer it and add little details and take away tracks for certain parts to give it that dynamic range and then once i lay out the structure on ableton i'm able to see where one particular instrument has been playing for the whole time for example so i take out a chunk of it and that completely changes the vibe in the middle of the song and then maybe i add a different sound to that so it's it's a lot of like experimentation and also it's kind of like a lottery because i try to start making a new song pretty much on a weekly basis and sometimes you'll start a song and you simply didn't win the lottery that day you're just uh, maybe unmotivated and it all sounds like shit and you simply don't have the will to continue and finish that song but then some days you'll start a new song and then from the first minute i hit gold this is the key defining feature of the music that our generation is putting out this high output with the understanding that some of it is going to be lower quality and some of it is going to be amazing and it's kind of like panning for gold and i can see this especially with trap music is just people will come out and they'll make like you know three songs in a day and then in a week they'll have like five that are good And this is versus like the Pink Floyd approach to making music where you spend well over a year coming up with eight of the most classic songs ever. But um, like you said, you've made what, 120, 130 songs? Let me check the official counter. (laughs) Interestingly, the things you just said, I learned from Caleb Fleischer of Indoor Creature. He's another one of my mentors. And he told me using the trap example, because you know, I am no I'm no fan of trap. Oh man, you gotta get into it. I honestly really don't enjoy that style of music, but he told me <laughs> It's the worst music ever made, so I understand where you're coming from, uh, but also it's the best music. Yeah, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I can enjoy it if it's good, but the thing is it's hardly ever good. That's the point. But Caleb told you uh using trap as an example. This was shortly after I made my first electronic song. And I went to him for advice because he's excellent at producing and excellent at arranging. And so I told him, hey, you know how to make electronic music, right? Maybe you could help me. When he came over to help me, he was telling me about the the benefits of making electronic music and about how 
being an electronic musician, it's about being proficient and being constant in your in in your stream of creation. You know, you just produce frequently and release music frequently. It's not all going to be excellent, but electronic music has a shorter shelf life than uh, instrument music. Electronic music is undoubtedly simpler to make, at least in in my style, and at least. In my approach, what I find most alluring about producing electronic music is that basically, as opposed to when I write music for the band, in which I try to be as ebullient as possible, you know, melodically and kind of try to put flair and flourishes into the music, uh, in electronic music, you have to basically practice a level of restraint. And that's kind of where the exercise is, because ultimately I'm trying to make people dance. And if the if a song is too complicated, too many harmonic elements at play at once, it just won't captivate people. The beauty of electronic music, at least you know, for techno and house, is in the simplicity. And how can you get the most people to want to dance to a song? And sometimes that just involves a kick, a clap, and a bass. It can be super simple. That is a very profound and beautiful thing that you just said. The kind of stuff you're talking about where having very orchestrated electronic music, you will have like three people in the audience that are really grooving to the super technical kind of stuff. But you don't cater to three people. You cater to the crowd. Yeah, exactly. And my my goal is to make my friends dance and whoever dance without sacrificing my musical integrity. So I still make music that I'm very proud of. It's just that it's a completely different mindset behind it. It's a completely different attitude. Whereas on the one hand, I want to tickle the listener's ears through different musical and melodic passages. On the other one, I kind of want them to just lose themselves on the dance floor. It's two completely different attitudes behind each goal. in that I am a very melodically and harmonically oriented musician and to kind of fight that instinct in me and make something that I can still find the artistic value and that's where I find the beauty of making electronic music and then of course sharing in that beauty with other people that's just my favorite thing so that you can get people engaged in the way that they love to be engaged and you love to see that they are enjoying the work when i go to a show if i go to see a band i hope that they will make some stuff that i dance to but if i don't you know if i just enjoy it and i'm standing there then it's still good but if i go to see an electronic artist like i'm going to dance you know, I'm going to go dance for a couple of hours. Like, that's why I'm there. And they, they better be bringing that. And if they're doing something that's interesting just for me to listen to, then that's their niche. And they will not have the mainstream appeal. When I consume electronic music, I want to groove. I want to dance with my friends. And I just want to, like, get kind of get lost in the get lost in the sauce, man, honestly. Get lost in that sauce, dude? Yeah, for real. It's therapeutic, and I currently I, I really miss it. It's like a like a release that I'm I don't have currently, and it makes me sad. One of my uh, friends told me all week she builds up this energy 
that she can't release. And then she goes out on the weekend and lets it go. And this woman is like the craziest dancer that you've ever seen because that is the cathartic release. It's amazing. I mean, that's really another one of the reasons that I started making electronic music is because as I told you, I was going through a breakup at the time and I was tired of getting reminded of the same things over and over by the songs that I loved. I actively started seeking music in other languages so that I wouldn't understand the lyrics and electronic music that wouldn't have any lyrics. Do you have any advice to people that are currently in bands that might think someone in their band is cute? (laughs) Do you think that having a relationship with someone in a a band that you're in in like your creative base is a is a good idea that's a doozy because on the one hand i believe that it being in a relationship is always a risk and it always takes work life always presents people with a difficult situation so no matter what situation you're in being in a relationship will take work and being in a band is just one of the many many kinds of situations that you can find yourself in with somebody you love Does it make it any easier? No, but there are a lot of fun aspects of being in a band with somebody you love. Uh, I've done it before. Didn't necessarily continue that way, but it was fun while it lasted. And um, my band has always been diverse. I've I've found some of my band members cute (laughs) at times. And ultimately, nothing has ever come out of it because ultimately you kind of just become like brother and sister kind of it's it's kind of a strange situation but once you're with someone like for so long it it it, the the relationship kind of evolves into something even even bigger than just dating for a while or whatever the foundation of the relationship is not based in the typical courtship male female kind of relations you have a relationship if you're in a band with someone that it's on levels that are not typically reached. So those levels will come to define your relationship. And then the other levels, the the sexual, the romantic levels just kind of don't seem as important as the, the creative levels. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a whole different dynamic when you're with someone in a band. I've always said that being in a band is like having three or four girlfriends and that, you know, that's always true. But it's also like having three or four siblings. It's a whole different uh, dynamic. (laughs) And by the way, those two comparisons, they don't overlap. It's two completely different comparisons. (laughs) 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 But are you asking me this question because you, you know somebody who's in a band that they find cute or something? No, not at all. It's just something that I was thinking about from talking with you that maybe you would have some kind of insight over. But to me, like listening to you talking about the journey that you have gone on creatively, the catalyst of this was your breakup. It seems like this was a very good thing. And going and seeing the halfways, like I only know the permutation that was this older one. It seems like that was a very good thing while that was happening. And now that it's not happening, uh, it's taken you in really good directions. As with any event that will shake your foundation and challenge your world and challenge you, you know, it can definitely... Uh, send you in different trajectories. And I'm particularly happy about the artistic trajectory that I've embarked 
on in the past few years because yes on the one hand it would have never happened otherwise and secondly just goes to show that music really is a good cure it's helped me cope it's helped me basically it's like the source of all my how do i even explain what music is to me music is just the way in which i cope with existence you know and the breakup was ultimately in the course of my entire existence just merely one of the things that sets you on a new path and it's uh, incredibly interesting to see how events of the past put you where you are today. And another thing about music, I have a consumer relationship with music. I've made some, but that's not like how I view myself. I view myself as very much just a fan of music. And what you're talking about, how it helps you work through process, live, experience, emote, it's an ineffable key part of your life. When I listen to music, I, I take the musician's emotional journey and what they've put out, and it affects me, and it affects me very deeply. It's a beautiful thing. It's an absolutely beautiful thing what another person's creative output can do to me. Some of my favorite musicians, they've gone through things that I don't comprehend that are not things that I will ever go through, but their music strikes me on a level that they could never anticipate. Going back to that whole Bach example, think about how many people he's, you know, his compositions have touched throughout the last 200 years. We'll never understand who he was, and he probably never envisioned that his music would be so widespread and so impactful to people. It's incredible to think music affects everybody differently, because me, for example, I don't necessarily think too much about the, the musician's emotions when listening to music. I think more of the emotions that it makes me feel, and uh, I think more of my kind of relationship with the music, because truth be told, whenever I listen to music, it's kind of hard for me to focus on the lyrics. I focus on the melody a lot, but it's difficult for me to focus on the lyrics to the point where I don't even know the lyrics of some of my favorite songs. This is such a huge disconnect between you as a musician and me as a consumer, and I will not pretend like I speak for all consumers of music because I don't play an instrument and I don't have knowledge of how music works. But lyrics and the singer is like the bridge. There's a lot of bands where the singer is the worst musician in the band, yet happens to be the face <laughs> of the band, which is a super strange conundrum. <clears throat> the doors. Yes. Uh, the doors or the... The Red Hot Chili Peppers? I honestly love both of those bands. There's a lot of music where, like, as I'm listening to it, the lyrics are cutting me up or lifting me up. But as the song becomes part of my life, you know, as I listen to it over and over again, that's not as important. Everything, like the violin sections and the movements and the time signatures and the motions and uh, how things are playing with each other and the percussion and all of that becomes more and more important as I listen to a song that has initially gripped me with the lyrics. You know, you can think of a, you know, a vocal as representing the salesmen of a company. You know, they're the ones who will draw people in. But then once you've 
<laughs> this is terrible. This is like I'm um, comparing music to a, co- a corporation. But yeah, once you start buying their their product, uh, you start to appreciate their uh, human resources department. You start to appreciate their design <laughs> department. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think uh, that's the worst way of looking at it. <laughs> and Austin, how easy is it for you as a working musician to make your way through through life? And have you noticed uh, it becoming more difficult in the last couple of years? Austin is definitely not cheap, but it is less expensive than Miami, that's for sure. So that's been a great help. And yeah, you know, it's it's just very difficult to make money when playing music because the venues simply aren't making much because people haven't been conditioned to pay higher ticket prices. And that's simply the truth. And also there's the loss of album sales and whatnot. And it's just always been difficult. Truth be told, musicians have never had their own fate in their own hands. I mean, if you think about it from the time of the Baroque, all of our favorite composers now were subject to the whims of the royals, and they were the ones who employed them, and they were the ones who basically dictated their catalog. And now the royals, maybe they're not called royals, but basically they just have evolved into corporations, and I think that it's safe to say that they could be considered the royals of today. And music is once again at their hands. They can do with it what they want and they use it how they like. So it's made it incredibly difficult for musicians to actually make a sustainable living. I'm really happy that you bring up historical difficulties that have faced artists, because I think that it is a natural inclination of people to think that the issues we face now are new and novel to our time. But everything we are facing is some kind of permutation of something that has already happened. This is why it's important to study history. Times just evolve, but there are certain principles that don't really evolve unless you completely change the system, which we haven't. And one of them is that the artists have always been at the mercy of the rich. That's just the truth. One conflict that I have within my love for classic art, art from the Renaissance and the Baroque, is that a lot of it is centered around religion. I'm not a supporter of organized religion, but I am very much a supporter of this art. I love it. It is absolutely beautiful. But one thing that I noticed is that it's all based around religion. And that's just the kind of thing that the rich were pushing the artists to make at that time. And it's the way that life was centered. I go to like a classic museum and If it has a section that's entirely Christian art, it's just so boring. Okay, yeah, I've seen this, and this is 20 permutations on a scene that I'm familiar with that doesn't have that much variation. These people are absolutely incredible masters of their craft, but what they're doing isn't exciting to me. For me, even religious art has been very exciting. I mean, I don't know. I guess I just love mannerist paintings. I love that style. And that's pretty much all religious. Who's a mannerist artist? The thing is, I get the periods a bit confused, but I believe that Michelangelo's paintings could be considered mannerist. I'm looking at these, and these are incredibly vibrant with their colors. They're like classical paintings, but they're much more like a smorgasbord of the colors. Another thing that has somewhat changed, but not entirely, the access to materials back in the day of patronage was a huge reason why artists had to have patrons because if you wanted to paint something blue 
you might need to crush up blue coral, get blue dye, or even for some paints, like crush up sapphires into them. So if you were painting with black, you could use charcoal and you could use materials like that that was available to anyone. But if you had a patron, suddenly you could unlock these brand new colors, you know, green and red that would not be easy for you to get. And it's pretty interesting, Caravaggio who had a patron and he painted a lot of his stuff with black so that he could get extra money from his patrons for the expensive materials, but then not buy them and pocket the spare change. What you just said about access is, is incredibly interesting because even the most prominent musicians of the time didn't have access to all of the resources that they needed. One story that comes to mind is the story of the Brandenburg Concertos, you know, by Bach. He wrote them because he lived in the Palace of Cothen and, and Prince Leopold married a woman who didn't like music. And so he compiled those six concertos and then sent them to the Margrave of Brandenburg. And then the Margrave didn't have the musicians to play such complicated pieces. And since the pieces were compiled kind of at random, they weren't made to be one composite. They were kind of just picked from different pieces. The instruments used on each piece varied wildly. So in one of the later concertos, in the sixth, actually the last one, I believe there's like two or three cellos. And then in the first one, there's a horn player. And then there's a piccolo trumpet. It was a wide variety of musicians which were simply not available to the Margrave, and so he shelved them. This was around 1721, I think, and they weren't found until 1849, and the pieces were sold for $14. That's really when Bach became the renowned composer that he is now, because at the time, nobody really heard the Brandenburg Concertos. Because they just didn't have access to the ability to play them. That's pretty remarkable. One thing that I was just thinking about as you were uh, talking about that, I know quite a few horn players that played horn or other brass instruments through their school's music program, like a trumpet player who is playing in high school and is quite good. But after graduating, trumpets are one of the most expensive instruments you can buy. You know, he didn't have like two or three grand to drop on a trumpet. It's not like a guitar where you can go and get a guitar for a few hundred dollars. That in of itself is a, an access thing. Um, and there is now some pretty cool products available to kind of deal with that. There are plastic trumpets you can buy. I think they're 3D printed trumpets, but I could be wrong about that that are around $50, you know, it's not going to be the greatest sound quality, but will at least allow you to continue practicing and improving your skills. A lot of the best horn players of all time are from really underprivileged areas. Just that one instrument would have been such an expensive thing to buy. So it's pretty remarkable that they were able to rise to their level of excellence and also shows that there's a lot of beautiful creative minds that cannot flower just because they don't have access. Oh, actually, that's that's something interesting that, that reminded me of something that I didn't get to say about my band member, Calvin. He was the first person that I met out of the group, and I met him at this summer camp in Miami. I went to in like eighth grade, and so I met him way before I met anybody else. And so in that summer camp, I also met other kids, some of whom had like really expensive, like 
upright basses and cellos and stuff. And I was like, how do you, how are you guys getting this stuff? And I mean, yeah, if that's the barrier of entry for those kinds of instruments, then it's easy to see why not more people play them or why more people don't play them. <laughs> and I, I really want to thank you for coming on. Um, this has been a fantastic interview. It's been wonderful talking to you. Um, and this is my kind of folks. Daniel Fernandez is definitely uh, my kind of folk, and I'm very happy that he came on. Uh, if you're still listening, please go and check out uh, Daniel's music projects. We will have those linked in the show notes. My Kind of Folks is brought to you by Adam Alloy. Go and subscribe on iTunes. Go and subscribe on Twitter. Uh, Instagram, all that jazz. Go on Spotify, leave us a review. It'll help us get noticed. Uh, thank you. We appreciate you. Music by Tony Bianchini. Artwork by Pablito Something. You have a wonderful rest of your day. 